Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Well, joining us today on the conversation is Andrew Klein, who is the chairperson of the policy, public policy committee of the Cannabis National Industry Association. And we had him on the show previously, and we invited him back because we ran out of time to talk about all the issues that were important. So welcome back to the conversation, Andrew. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you, sir. Um, the, the headline issue of the day is the vaping crisis with over a thousand people being injured and maybe a 10 to 12 people so far uh, dying from the use of these pens. And um, we have uh, the, the government in some states like Massachusetts banning them altogether. Other states are considering them. Uh, we don't know, even the CDC and the FDA doesn't know for sure what is causing the illness or the injuries or the deaths. They're still trying to investigate that. And, um, and I know that your industry has a position so I'd like you to spend a few moments talking about what you as an organization believe needs to be done to make vaping safe. Sure. Yeah. Just to, just to, you know, clarify that the statistics, there've been over 30 deaths. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's a real issue. Uh, we believe uh, that the vast majority of these injuries and deaths are attributable to the illicit market. So the first thing that we need to do is to displace the illicit market um, and make sure that people have the opportunity to purchase regulated, tested, reliable products. Um, that is by far the most important issue uh, facing the industry today. And so the industry needs to collaborate with law enforcement to help them weed out these bad actors that are adding additives um, that are not testing, that are selling products that are unregulated, um, uh, and, and steer people toward the regulated, legal, tested marketplace. Uh, now, with that said, there are you know other potential issues. Um, when we when we uh, vaporize cannabis, we need to make sure that we're doing it at a temperature um, that doesn't change the molecular structure of the cannabinoids. And so, uh, I believe most doctors think that you know, 350 degrees is the right temperature. But if you're using a, a vaporizing battery uh, with a button on it, you need to make sure you're not using uh, the highest heat because uh, that can be dangerous. When, when, you're, when you're heating an element uh, to a degree uh, that's higher than, than, than what it's meant to be um, heated to, um, if that's proper English, um, you change the molecular structure and it becomes dangerous. And so we want to make sure people are, are uh, using low heat when they're vaporizing, even if it means uh, that they don't get the biggest uh, bang for their buck when they're taking a hit. Um, the other thing we need to be mindful of is the hardware. We want to make sure that, uh, you know, some of these devices that are being manufactured in China are, are not using uh, materials that could be harmful. It is possible that, um, some of the t materials that are being used in the manufacturing uh, process could be leaking heavy metals or leaching heavy metals. Uh, so we want to make sure we're using quality uh, products and that we are uh, inspecting the facilities in China that are that are manufacturing these these products. Um, but if, but if again, you know, it's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. 
I'm just, just going to tell her as we're talking with Andrew Klein from the Cannabis National Industry Association, in charge of public policy. And I, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I, I'm not taking any side in this issue. Um, I don't know how, um, how does the consumer know when they buy the vaping cartridge, whether it's got too much THC in it or it's got heavy metals or pesticides. There's no way for them to tell because the illegal people don't put much on the label. And they're buying, I guess, uh, Andrew, based on price. If it's cheaper in the black market, they buy it. And and I'm wondering with the issue that's happening with vape and the 30 deaths and 1,000 people being injured, has that changed the behavior of American consumers? I don't know that anyone has studied uh, whether or not it's changed the behavior, but, you know, look, my, my recommendation, and I think it's just a logical one, is if you want to buy THC, go to a licensed dispensary. Don't buy products off the street. So what's happening right now is people are manufacturing uh, labels and packaging that look legitimate. And so if you're buying something from, you know, a drug dealer off the street and it looks legitimate, it could very well be that someone just, you know, made this in their garage and put it in packaging that looks legitimate. You need to go to a licensed dispensary and buy tested regulated products. That's the only way to be, to, to be certain that the products you're buying are not dangerous. You know, in a, in a previous conversation that you and I had, you talked about how the, the government has a role here. And one of the roles of the government is that their fees uh, to the dispensaries and the taxes they're levying on these products uh, makes the, the illegal product considerably less expensive. And that's why people buy it. How do we convince the governments to reduce their fees and structure to make the legal product as competitive to the illegal product? No, and that's a, you know that's a great question. Something we do address in our most recent paper is you know we need to keep taxes um, you know to a minimum, right? We need to we need to be able to cover the regulatory costs through the taxation, but we need to make sure that we're not uh, you know forcing people into the illicit market because taxes are too high. So you know particularly when the federal government comes in and regulates, we need to make sure that those federal taxes. Um, you know, aren't high enough to discourage people from buying regulated product. It's a, it's a, it's a balancing act, but it's one that we need to pay attention to. Now, you, you mentioned your report. Is your report on this issue available on the website? Yes. So if you go to www.thecannabisindustry.org, click on policy council, excuse me, policy and advocacy at the top, and then click on policy council, um, once you scroll through all the the, the uh, headshots and bios of the members of the policy council, and you get to the bottom, you'll see a library of, of um, papers that we published over the last couple of years. The first one you'll see on the on the top left is the most recent paper on how we think cannabis should be regulated once descheduling happens. What is your uh, what's your feeling in the time we have left? What is your feeling about whether or not the Congress is going to ultimately deregulate cannabis? Uh, you mean deschedule? Um, yes. So, you know, I think ultimately uh, it will happen. 
Um, I think we're still a couple of years away. Um, you know, I think the Republicans um, are starting to get more comfortable with uh, certainly with banking. And I'm, I'm fairly confident state banking will pass in the 116th. Um, I don't think that there are enough Republicans uh, in the Senate supportive of descheduling and, and full legalization quite yet. So my guess is that, you know, that's going to be uh, a couple of years away, probably when we have, uh, if we have a uh, democratic, democratic uh, uh, president in the White House. So the, the, um, the, the government, and in, including the members of Congress, are, are not there yet. Is, is that what you're saying? They're, they're still mulling it over, trying to figure out what to do? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, the MORE Act, which calls for descheduling and then provides for social equity provisions, has, I think, about 54 uh, co-sponsors in the House. So and then that bill is sponsored by the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So, you know, to me, that's an indication that people um, have not quite wrapped their heads yet around full legalization. Uh, and they're more interested in the in the more incremental approaches like states and and safe banking. Um, but we'll see, you know, I mean, all the president, all the Democratic presidential candidates, with the exception of one, have uh, come out in support of descheduling and, and social equity provisions. And so, um, you know, we'll see we'll see what that debate looks like um, during the 2020 uh, general election. It, it could be that that, you know, Trump comes around to that position and and drives the Republicans in a better direction. Yeah. One last uh, question. It, it seems to me that the the presidential candidates who have come out in favor of descheduling of, of cannabis uh, are, are not addressing uh, a lot of other issues that are related, whether it's 280E or banking. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if their support is more of a political promise as opposed to a, a real action step. Well, uh, by virtue of the fact that you support descheduling means that you uh, support a 280E fix, because the reason that 280 exists is because uh, of the Controlled Substances Act. So once you deschedule, 280E becomes a non-issue. Banking becomes a non-issue. Um, so all the candidates that are supporting descheduling are, 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 are essentially saying they support a fix to 280E, they support a fix to the banking issue, they support a fix to the social equity issues. All those issues flow from descheduling. So you mentioned that uh, people can uh, log on to your website and and you mentioned that there's a way that they can get regular updates from the association. How do they do that? Um, if you if you download uh, uh, the paper um, that we've been talking about, uh, it asks you to to input your email address, and then you'll automatically start getting updates from us. Terrific. We've been speaking with Adam Klein, Director of Public Policy Group at the Cannabis National Industry Association about vaping and the challenges of deregulation. Andrew, thank you for joining us in the conversation today. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. Everywhere you look, you see stories about cannabis and CBD, but how can you trust that you're getting accurate information? 
we want to introduce you to a new radio program called America's Cannabis Conversation. This program is designed to help you gain as much information as you can about the cannabis industry. Every week, this one-hour program connects you with experts from many facets of the cannabis business to grow your knowledge and help you make better, more informed decisions. Join the conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, the Emerald Cup here in Santa Rosa, California, right near the epicenter of the Great Groves in Humboldt County in the Emerald Triangle. Rich Walkoff with Rio and John, guys who are legacy growers. You go back to the day, and I would love to hear your stories from then to now. But let's start with you, Rio. You've been at this a long time, and the game has certainly changed. Oh, for sure. It's, uh, with legalization, brought huge changes just to even how we live our life. Like, it used to be that you didn't talk about what you did, and now you've got to promote and market what you do. You, uh, you, needed, you didn't need to be connected in a, in a networking community back in the day, or you did, but it was, you know, very private, and now it's public and out, out in, 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 in the public sphere. Right. And, uh, I mean, not only do, are we welcoming the change, but we're also trying to bring our endemic values from our beautiful community back up and market those values of uh, living close to the earth, uh, family heritage, small farms, regenerative agriculture. I feel like part of our duty as this clandestine community is to share something that was unique and beautiful that wasn't really part of the conversation before. Right. So, so out of the underground into the bright light, but you've kept your core values, huh, John? Yeah. You know, as much as it, it's changed, it, it has also remained the same. And Really, what's the same for myself and also, I think, for Rio is that we come from a community that's just of like no other. And it's an amazing community. It's um, a community that's been very supportive of some different challenges that I personally have had to overcome. Um, when I was 20 years old, I got sentenced according to the mandatory minimums for growing this cannabis plant and served eight out of 10 year prison sentence in a federal prison camp. And it was really the community of Southern Humboldt that allowed me to come back and to, to, to thrive back in this community and to feel welcome. And it's like, a, it's a big family there. And I, I'm very indebted to that community and I support them in their path forward. And I look forward to what the future holds for us because we grow some of the best cannabis in the world. Go back to your sad tale of eight years of your life and the prime of your life behind bars because you were cultivating cannabis. Yeah, and I don't like to look at it as a sad tale. It's just a, it's another story in my life that I can now tell and that's given me a platform to go ahead and to share with the world what makes us so special. And it was something that happened to me, but it could have happened to any one of my friends at that time. It just happened to be the one that it happened to. So we all share those um, experiences together and, and really that's what, what has bonded us so tightly in this new regulated market. Well, it's pretty remarkable that you don't have the acrimony or the contempt for what happened to you. That, that's a 
pretty enlightened, advanced mindset. Has it something that you that evolved for you, or were you living with bitterness and resentment for a long time when this all went down? You know, it was something that I was never really bitter about because it became very very important to me and I I recognize the bitterness into so many different people that I saw in jail that I refused to make that happen. I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. I was just reminded very quickly in jail the importance of community, of family, of friends, and it really trumped making the, the almighty buck. So it was just a reminder of something that I've always known and, uh, yeah, and that's how we're moving forward. So. Yeah. So do you feel, in a way, that you were a catalyst to change because of what happened to you and many others, that the outrage just blew the lid off the old paradigm on what cannabis was all about and growers were not criminals and shouldn't be treated as such? I, I think that that maybe holds true now. I think people re- are realizing now that state of California is, is legal, that what happened to me was maybe unfair or unjust, but I can use that, 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 that thing that happened to me as a platform to share with the world what we're all about. So what might seem to be something that was not so, so good is something that now I find to be amazing because now I have this platform that people can listen to me and, and hear what I have to say, not about myself, but about my, the community that I'm from. You talk a little bit about that community, Rio. You you alluded to it at the top of our program. What makes it feel so special? Take us inside the Emerald Triangle in the in the grow world. Well, I think there was like an innovative moment, like a, just a one little moment in time in the in the post '60s when a bunch of urban intellectuals said, "Hey." This is effed. We don't want to do this. We don't want to be part of the military-industrial complex. We don't want. We want uh, to live simply. We don't need money. We need love and family and peace and harmony. And that one moment when this collective group of, of like-minded people moved out to the country attracted not only just more people to do this, but it attracted. Uh, a whole set of values that now are being passed down for generations of, hey, we don't believe in war. We don't believe in, in, uh, in, in collectively. We believe in spiritual, spiritual, spirituality. We don't believe in hate. We, you know, we have these clear conversations about what our values are and, and the idea that, you know, um, maybe modern society isn't really all it's cracked up to be because it maybe like is uh, separates us from being human um, in many ways. So we're kind of on our own evolution in terms of what our community conversations are yeah. out there. So, so what role does cannabis play in that? I mean, it's a truth serum in many ways. It brings out uh, honest conversation. It brings out communalism. It's traditionally used as a sacramental way for people to like vibe together and it's still done that way I mean we don't smoke joints alone in Humboldt we smoke joints with our friends so you know the uh, 
it's it's not a product it's more of a of a uh, staple part of our homestead well when you look at other cultures in india and the native american indians and in southeast asia south america these cultures embraced cannabis and other products of, of nature that were hallucinogens and the like as transcendent spiritual awakenings. Oh, and it's still doing that now. We're with legalization. We're bringing that transcendence to modern culture because, I mean, alcohol has been kind of everybody's modus to utilize to kind of um, be free and, and live in the moment. But now we have another legal substance of cannabis that can be adopted by the masses that I fully, I fully believe that it's going to bring a transcendence to modern culture. Yeah, but unlike alcohol, which can bring out the worst in people, I oh, think I most people think that cannabis usually brings out the best in people, John. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, if it's used in the right ways and what really is needed now nowadays is uh, a lot more education because what might make me feel good might not make you feel good and vice versa. So um, it's really important for the consumer to really figure out for themselves what it is about certain strains or or products that makes them feel good. And, and really, I think the most important thing for a consumer to learn nowadays is to know who your farmer is, know how that farmer is, what its growing techniques are, what kind of organizations they support. Because if you can figure out for yourself as a consumer what kind of person I am or what kind of person Rio is, and you can figure out that we're good people, there's a really good chance that the product that we're, we're producing is with love and it's probably a pretty good product. So. Right. And, and you guys refer to yourself as legacy growers because you've done it maybe for a generation or more with family and friends. But there's also the component of keeping it organic and clean and environmentally in tune so we're not running counter to mother nature and we're not ingesting the kind of chemicals that nobody would want in our bodies yeah i mean uh, we have an adage in the, in the triangle to scale is to fail because how can you scale biodiversity i mean you can scale biodiversity but you got there's a harmony when you have a cannabis plant in a harmonious natural environment the bugs aren't out of whack they're not just attacking the only green thing on the landscape they're attacking the artichokes or the peas or you know so when you're growing in a way with uh that's it has natural balance to it you don't you're not spraying there's more uh, mycorrhizal fungal in the soil which is pulling that up through and into the medicine it's a true medicine instead of a vessel for a chemical Right. So your grows are limited in their scope and scale for that very reason. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, Rio and, and, and I have a little bit different growing techniques. Um, Rio's farm is more, I would consider, a regenerative type farmer, which is, 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 is tougher technique of growing than I'm doing. I am definitely working towards that. It's just uh, different properties allow different people to be able to do different things. So 
Um, although I wouldn't consider myself a regenerative farmer, I think that's some of the best farming techniques in the world, and I am working towards that. The strains that I grow on my farm are far strains that my mom grew 45 years ago. Unfortunately, when I was in jail, she passed away. And so in her honor, those are the strains that I continue to grow on that farm, and there's only a few farmers that I, I feel comfortable with sharing that with, and Rio's one of those farms. Um, and uh, What is you know, that strain, if I may ask? The, well, it, it's a multiple of strains. One of the strains is called Paradise Punch, and I've crossed that with a few other strains, but it's her strain that I cross with every strain that I grow on that farm. And, um, and how many generations? It's been in our community for generations, so just like a stable varietal. It's, I mean, your mom was growing in the 70s, so it's been every year grown and stabilized to our region. So it does so well in our climate. No, you guys are in a community that you refer to as really connected and uh, kind of got the roots in the history. But it wasn't always that way with the lumber and some, the lumber industry and some of the, well, the political divide that separated growers from maybe more conservative or right-wing types. Can you talk about the evolution of that social phenomenon in the Emerald Triangle? Yeah, um, I mean, settlers, like Western settlers, only settled into the, into the Pacific North, like in the north coast of California in like the 1890s, so we're only like two or three generations old when we were kids, the hippie kids and the redneck kids used to fight in school a lot. And then we started smoking cannabis together and started being best friends. So, like, we have bridged this super intense divide. And with the onset of legalization, nobody in, in our county seat trusted us to be part of this. So we had to bridge that divide as well. So there has been, I mean a cultural assimilation and for in our just in our life it's been intense um that you know there has been a lot of division regionally that we've overcome i mean there's hope for america if we can only take it to a more <laughs> national level than just isolated in humboldt county you think about how polarized our country is today with the make a great make america great again hat wearing types and uh, maybe 60% of the rest of the country yeah we're kind of all in this together lady sativa farm that's your place, huh, Rio? Yes, and uh, I'm right near the Benbow Inn in lovely Benbow, California. It's a beautiful, uh, natural, like a confluence of, or not a confluence, but a bend in the river. We're 12 miles from the coast, and we sit right up on top of a mountain, and we practice uh, regenerative agriculture, and we so we're building forest soils for our cannabis in this like mountaintop paradise. That sounds beautiful. I've been to Benbow Lake. You far from there? Right above it. Oh, that yeah. sounds awesome. That is that is God's country for sure. Yeah, beautiful redwoods in the valleys. There's so many microclimates just on the way up the hill. Um, so the winds, the, the coastal air comes in and the fog moves down the river and we got redwoods, ancient redwoods below us and uh, oak forests up on top of the mountain. Cool. And how about your, your farm, John? Um, I'm on the west side of the county. I'm maybe Close five miles ocean. away from the coast and kind of more in a valley. And so the different strains that I grow there 
Um, like I said, I've been growing those there for the last 40 years, and so um, they seem to grow there better than any other place in the world. And um, yeah, mixed forest as well, and beautiful creeks running through his property. And yeah, I'm bordered by two two spawning tributaries on both sides of the creek that that hold uh, salmon and steelhead, and so. Do I hear correctly that you won some environmental award for helping to preserve the uh, the fish in your area? This year I received the uh, an award from California Department of Fish and Wildlife as being the first environmental-friendly, fish-friendly farm in the state of California, which is an amazing hurdle to overcome with a regulatory agency that has always been opposed to cannabis. And so um, we're trying to build some bridges together and and really not have it be them and us and have it be about all of us. Yeah, cannabis and catfish can coexist, right? Or yeah. cannabis and steelhead and salmon, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. There's a, you know, it's about runoff. I mean, they've, the actual things that Department of Fish and Wildlife want, we also want. So we weren't, we are not opposed to the, uh, to, the ask to the regulations, we think they're actually good, like designing your roads so that the water goes back into the forest and outsloping. And so everything they wanted, we agreed to. It's just the politics. When it gets to like miscommunication, it's cultural mm-hmm. that, uh, that becomes the, the disfract, dis, uh, disassociation. And like, I mean, yeah. yeah, there's a cliche view of each other. That we haven't over- that we're still trying to overcome. Are you guys more optimistic of the future for your farms and cannabis as it in its new incarnation being legal and for small boutique farms like your you both have? Are you more optimistic about the prospects for tomorrow? Um, I think they're going to be very challenging. I think unless the regulatory people. Um, realize that we're not burying a bunch of money in the ground and that we're barely surviving. Um, the quicker they realize that, the maybe we can we can move forward and actually survive. But um, they need to deal with the flower tax that now we're faced with, which is just completely unfair. There's really just no more pieces of the pie per se for the small farmer. There's no more money to give. We are right. we are we are taxed heavily. We are regulated heavily and i don't mean to complain i'm just saying we want to have the ability just to be able to support our family and to make a living we're not trying to make a bunch of money here we're just trying to bring the consumer the best possible product that we can right. bring and maybe with all the points you made it's encouraging the black market and that would flourish more because of the the challenges that you face as a legal grower that makes the price go up, cumbersome as it is for you to bring your plant from seed to sale versus the black market guy was maybe destroying the environment and getting it to the marketplace for half the price. Yeah, I mean, it's it. every time we're, we add costs into our legal farm, it makes the black market thrive even more. So the more... You know, the, the price per pound that a farmer can get in the legal market is so low now that uh, that you tell your friends that are in the black market and there there's a disincentive to engage it. And so 
if the state ever wants to like create a legal framework, they have to make the incentives viable. Gavin Newsom, are you listening? All right, gentlemen, thanks so much for your time on the 420 Radio Network. Rich Walcott with Rio and John, Humboldt County Legacy Growers here at the Emerald Cup 2019 in Santa Rosa. America's newest and fastest-growing cannabis-focused radio network is expanding across the country and looking to add to our sales and marketing team. America's Cannabis Conversation offers listeners insight and information on the exploding world of cannabis. It also gives advertisers the opportunity to reach a hyper-targeted audience, literally neighborhood by neighborhood, in markets all across the country. We're looking for a few motivated individuals that want to essentially run their own local business. To learn more about this exciting opportunity or to apply, visit americascannabisconversation.com. Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation, heard online at americascannabisconversation.com. We're part of the W420 Radio Network, and each week we provide you with information, education, and insight into the exploding medical and recreational cannabis industry. You'll hear from industry leaders, elected officials, local experts, detractors, and more. Learn how to build your own cannabis business, how to grow the product, what's legal, and where it's legal. Tune in each week to hear updates from the National Cannabis Industry Association in Washington. Tips on investing in cannabis markets, personal success stories, and more. It's now time to join America's Cannabis Conversation. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. I want to take a moment to tell you why we started this groundbreaking network and show. Hundreds of thousands of people who work in the cannabis industry trying to help people are not permitted to tell their story on the public airways of radio and TV. In spite of these restrictions, the American cannabis industry is growing at about 35% per year and accelerating. As you listen to this show from time to time, you will hear real people telling their story of how cannabis helped them or business people who grew their business. When I started talking to people in the exploding cannabis business and telling them what we were trying to do, I heard this common question. When can you help me? Well, starting today, we are going to give you a voice. We promise to do our best to bring you a high value entertaining program. We want from you what you want from your customers. Come back for more. And now let's meet our guest. Welcome back to the conversation. Joining us today is our cannabis doctor on call, Dr. Jordan Tischler. And we're going to talk about cancer. Not a pleasant subject to talk about, but one of the areas where cannabis is approved in many states with medical marijuana as helping people deal with cancer. Dr. Jordan, welcome back to the conversation. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Tell us what you want to talk about today, doctor. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, my practice, as you know, focuses really on people with uh, pretty severe illnesses of various sorts. Um, and so, as you can imagine, cancer in one form or another is a large percentage of the people that I see. Um, and so I've kind of developed a lot of familiarity with what we can achieve with cannabis. And I wanted to talk with you about that today because I think that it's um, it's underutilized frankly um we we do know that you know there are some studies that show about one in four 
cancer patients uh, uses cannabis in some form. Um, but And so on some level, one in four is pretty good, given the fact that at least until recently it's been completely illegal. But on the other hand, given what people who have cancer are facing and the broad range of difficulties that can be helped with cannabis, one in four seems kind of low to me. And I think it really should be, you know, 90 percent, you know, never say everybody uh, because that's kind of um, knee jerk. But and there's certainly some people who can't tolerate cannabis in one form or another. But quite frankly, uh, given the the um, uh, severity of what goes along with the cancer diagnosis, I think that we can make a lot of mileage for people um, under those circumstances. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about what we can do, what we know, what we can um, anticipate down the line, and then also talk a little bit about some of the mythology that's out there and, um, you know, where that fits. Um, so when it comes to l- thinking l- about cancer, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you finish, please. I was just going to say, you know, in, in terms of the way I think about cancer, I kind of lump the discussion into two halves. Uh, the first half, as I was talking to you about earlier, is really what I call symptom management. Right? When people have cancer, they get an array of discomforts, um, whether that's pain from the cancer itself or pain as a result of some of the things that we use to treat cancer. Uh, certainly, we, we see people who have nausea and vomiting, who have difficulty eating. And then there are other things that kind of just go along with being told that you have cancer and going through the process, like depression and anxiety and insomnia. And all of those things are really well managed with cannabis if it's done in a careful and, and, and thoughtful way. So that's kind of lump number one. And then, you know, we can talk more about sort of the whole discussion of whether cannabis itself can actually treat the cancer, the, the, the tumor itself. Uh, that's sort of a separate discussion uh, that I think of in a separate way. I want to go back just briefly to a comment that you made, because I think it's so important that it needs to be said. You said not everybody can tolerate cannabis. And from and and for, again, not being a doctor, but there are lots of people who can't tolerate some of the cancer treatment drugs. So that oh that God, yeah. we do not want to leave an impression with anybody in their in their mind that cannabis is the cure that everybody will benefit because it's just like some people can take Tylenol and some people can't, and some people could take ibuprofen and some people can't. Our 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 whole purpose of this series of discussions that we're having was to begin to identify what are some of the major illnesses that the states have approved as cannabis for a treatment for those illnesses. So let's, let's talk about the first part of what you want to talk about, and let's go into treating symptoms, initial symptoms. Yeah, you know, um, and, and so you're absolutely right. I, I 100% agree with you. You know, no medicine is without some risk, some side effects. Um, and cannabis is compared to many medicines, very safe, but nothing's a hundred percent. Right. And so there are people out there who, you know, shouldn't take cannabis for a number of reasons then perhaps a family history, a personal history of, um, uh, severe, not mild, but severe psychiatric illness. Uh, there are people out there who can be made very, very sick with CBD, 
um, because of its interactions with other medications, and in particular, their genetic the, uh, the genetic composition of their liver may be different. So we need to think about all those sorts of things. But in the grand scheme of things, when we think about a successful conventional medication, we're pretty happy if it works sort of 40% of the time. And in my experience, clinical uh, experience, I would say that the cannabis works about 80% of the time, so twice as often. Uh, and I think that that's a really stunning number, but it isn't a hundred percent. And so we have to be realistic about that. Um, the other thing that I think sometimes mystifies some of my colleagues is the fact that cannabis can be helpful for such a wide range of seemingly unrelated things like nausea and vomiting and, and depression. Um, but that gets back to the things we've talked about in the past about the way in which the endocannabinoid system, their internal um, cannabis system is built in the way it, what it really does is maintain the balance or homeostasis in our body. And so when you get cancer and we start to throw at that cancer a bunch of different uh, medications aimed at killing it off, um, that's got to be one of the more major blows to our body's homeostasis or balance that there is, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. you think about it, the way in which cancer treatments work is that basically they go in and kill off all of the cells that are rapidly dividing. Now, that includes cancer, but it also includes some other normal cells, and that makes us sick. Um, and so the goal with cancer chemotherapy in particular is usually to beat the cancer so hard that we really knock it out. And hopefully we do that fast enough and hard enough that the person actually, though suffering, survives it and then is well again thereafter. Um, so it is fundamentally a kind of brutal uh, process, both in conception and in reality. When we start to see people who are having the pain or having the inability to eat because they're so sore, uh, their mouth, their throat, their, all of that is so sore, or simply that they just, you know, that the chemistry is such that they're just turned off by food. Using cannabis in, in, in low doses, very gently, can make a world of difference. Um, and so, you know, there are a number of different approaches that vary depending upon where we are in the treatment and, and sort of what is the primary set of symptoms and how often or how much of the time of the day these symptoms are ongoing. Um, but basically it kind of varies, uh, comes down to um, using this by inhalation versus using it orally. Um, the inhalation, as we've talked about before, is um, something where we would want a quality cannabis vaporizer so that we're not smoking it and exposing ourselves to various carcinogens that obviously would be counterproductive while we're trying to treat the cancer. But the key Mm. thing about inhalation is that it's rapid onset. So if you have nausea and you're going to vomit or it's lunchtime and you need to eat because it's time now, you don't really want to be sitting around waiting for an edible to do its thing because they're slow and unpredictable, right? right? Whereas inhalation gets right in there and does what we need to do. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a position where perhaps you have some chemotherapy-induced neuropathy pain or you have metastases to the bone which cause pain, and so you're in pain 
kind of round the clock, then using inhalation can be counterproductive because while, yeah, you feel well, better for a little while, you get this up, down, up, down kind of yo-yo effect, and that actually can make things worse. So in those situations, the edibles are much more useful because they're longer acting, even if they're slow to start. So there are a bunch of different situations where using the same medicine can get us very different effect, but we're able to cover a wide range of problems that cancer patients face. We're speaking with our cannabis doctor on call, Dr. Jordan Tischler. And doctor, I guess the, the question that always bugged me before I got involved in this business is all of the, I don't want to call claims, but all the, all the things that even the States have said that in their medical marijuana requirements can, can be impacted how is it possible in the next uh, three or four minutes that we've got left, how is it possible that this one thing can treat so many things that are happening in our system? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And it really comes down to understanding what it is that that endocannabinoid system, our internal system is doing. You know, when we think about sort of a neurologic or endocrine system, we tend to think about things that we can see the effect of, right? So, you know, if I'm standing here as I am talking to you and waving my arm wildly about, um, we can see that my arm is moving and that's because there's a neurologic system that connects my thought, move my arm in my brain down through various nerves to the muscles that make my arm move. And so we're, we've known about that sort of a system for a very long time. And there are a whole bunch of them. There's a mood system, there's a reward system, there's a pain sensing system, there's a visual system, right? I mean, there's a language system. There are all these sort of primary systems. But what was less obvious to us is that there are systems, or at least in particular one system, this endocannabinoid system, that ties all of those other systems together and makes them work properly together, essentially as a whole organism. And it's because that system, that endocannabinoid system, is not so visible. It's up there kind of, you know, doing the the behind-the-scenes things, the coordination of all of those other systems, that it wasn't immediately obvious to us that there would be such a system. Um, And it's taken 60-odd years for us to understand, largely because we went looking for why does this plant do these things, it's, it's led us to understand a whole new system, both neurologically and also sort of body-wide. Um, but the fact that it coordinates across all of those different systems means that it has an effect on sort of very, very different sets of actions or problems. And that's the part that everyone has hard time r- wrapping their head around. But that's why, it's, that's why it works across all those problems. Uh, thank you for that. That was very helpful. I, I have a question. How do I go to find a doctor who understands what you just said? And cannabis is one of the things that they use in their arsenal to try and deal with cancer. Uh, First of all, I'm not on the spot by that question. I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. Um, and, And the answer is this. Look, this whole system is relatively new. Um, and yes, we can talk about the ways in which the legal system has impeded our knowledge of all that, but to your question of why is this not sort of more on the tip of the doctor's tongue, it's a complex 
system. It's a complex subject to which they've had no training yet. We, we, we're getting there, but that's not going to help the guys who are out there already you know, practicing. It's only going to help the new doctors. And it is enough of a new and complex system that, quite frankly, it's um, probably beyond the scope of most physicians' daily practice, which is why the way I practice medicine, this kind of medicine is as a specialist. So I work with many of the physicians, say, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center here in Boston, and mm -hmm. I see their patients, you know. They're treating the cancer directly, and then the patients come to me for help with how can cannabis make this go better. Um, and that's a very good model because it allows them to get that benefit of my years of experience, et cetera, um, without it having to sort of be shoehorned somehow into this medical oncology visit where there's frankly already way too much to go on, you know? And so if somebody is out there suffering with these sorts of things or uh, knows somebody who's suffering with these sorts of things, the first place I would turn is to the Association of Cannabis Specialists. And their website is cannabis hyphen specialist.org. I'll say it again, cannabis hyphen specialist.org. And the, the reason is this is a group of the doctors who are out there who know this sort of thing and who want to take care of their patients and are very evidence driven. Um, and we have a list of, of people, of members, doctors, and other clinicians who are available to help you or your loved ones in wherever you live. If, it happens that that list doesn't have somebody in your neck of the woods, then I would say connect with me directly. And you can go to my website, which is inhalemd.com, inhalemd.com, and you can click on the, the link there and send me an email, and we can set up a, 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 a telemedicine consultation. I do them all over the country and even around the world um, because, in fact, the reality here is that there aren't enough uh, knowledgeable cannabis specialists yet, and so I do whatever I can to sort of fill in the gaps and make sure that everybody gets what they need. Doctor, uh, thank you so much for giving uh, probably thousands and thousands of people alternatives. We've been, in the conversation today, we've been discussing with Dr. Jordan Tischler cancer, and uh, you've already given everybody how they get a hold of you. So thank you for joining us in the conversation today, doctor. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Sure. If you missed any of this interview, this great interview with Dr. Jordan, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go to the archive section, and there's a lot of shows posted with Dr. Tischler. He's on pretty regularly. So go there and learn more about this particular program and how it can help you or a family member. This is Dan Perkins. We'll be right back. Welcome to the conversation, and joining us today is Jabril Farah, a pharmacist from London who has been on our program before, and I've invited him back to talk about the CBD product in England and what it's happening and why people are choosing it. Jabril, thank you for joining us today. No problem. You told me in a pre-show that there was a significant event that happened around March around, uh, uh, was it CBD oil or cannabis? Uh, both, both. Um, okay. CBD, THC. Um, so um, I don't know if you know, but CBD itself became uh, legal in the UK only in um, like a few months ago. 
and the something happened that actually uh, forced almost forced the government to uh, basically legalize this which is that there was a a mom with a young child that had a very severe form of epilepsy and uh, the child was having up to 300 uh, epilepsy attacks per day so the air quality of life was pretty much nil and the mom has tried all the kind of different medicines from the uh, pediatric consultants and nothing was working so she said I want to try cannabis of course cannabis at the time was completely illegal in the UK in all forms so she went to Holland, which is just across the water from here, mm-hmm. where cannabis, you know, medicinal cannabis is legal. And she got her prescription filled by a specialist um, in Holland, and she brought it back to the UK. And upon landing in the UK, she found a, basically an army of police waiting for her, and she was arrested. Mm. And they have confiscated all her, uh, you know, CBD medicinal uh, cannabis. And this, by the way, cost her four thousand pounds, which is five thousand US dollars. And she's not, she's not a wealthy person by kind of any stretch of the imagination. So this was a lot of money for her that she actually uh, got through crowd surfing, um, sorry, crowdfunding uh, online. So obviously she was devastated, and um, she reached out to her local uh, member of parliament, and the press was there, and she kicked up a big fuss. And this is basic. This is how the government was forced to change the law, and basically legalize um, cannabis so that that child can use this medicine, you know, to make it better, to make her better, a medicine that was actually shown to help her. And I believe now she's a lot better. I mean, her level of attacks have reduced to maybe one or two a week from, you know, 300 per day. Wow. So just make sure I understand what you said. They create a, a specific law for this one child or did it change for everybody? Yeah, they changed the law in terms of that you can have uh, medicinal cannabis, any form of medicinal cannabis prescribed and basically hand it because because before in the UK, you couldn't even, even if a doctor gave you a prescription for medicinal cannabis, you couldn't, you couldn't take it to a pharmacy. So this was in March. Uh, all of us, yeah. just all of a sudden, the government decides yeah. that they're going to make medical cannabis legal. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. The, but there wasn't a delivery system to deliver it. So what happened? We call them dispensaries here in the states. But who was the first to start offering medicinal cannabis? Believe you or not, as ridiculous as this might sound, the prescription gets made up. Uh, the prescription gets written in the UK, but they actually have to ship it over from Holland. So literally, a, a dispensary a dispensary in Holland makes up fills a prescription, and then it gets shipped over to the patient in the UK. Wow. So the prescription might start, say, um, you know, $10, but by the time you've added delivery costs, the travel, the customs, everything, it might just, just completely blow up and be, about, you know, $100. Wow. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of a surreal situation. This, it doesn't make any sense, but this is the only way that you can get uh, medicinal cannabis to patients in the UK, yeah. Now, is there any discussion about creating medical marijuana dispensaries like we have in the states where the dispensaries can actually grow the cannabis, harvest it, and prepare it for drugs? There, there's not a discussion yet because um, the, the law itself changed so recently, so we're kind of, kind of chewing on that still. We haven't really become comfortable with it yet. So maybe in a year or two, then we, when more people are you know, using it, more doctors are prescribing it. The other problem is that doctors are very, very nervous 
about prescribing medicinal cannabis here because it doesn't have a license. So if a doctor prescribes it, it would be on an unlicensed basis. And if something happens to that patient, then the doctor would probably get shafted in the courts. So doctors are very, very nervous about prescribing it. So the volume of patients who are being prescribed medicinal cannabis is still very, very small. So I don't think any of the big chemist chains Mm. will set up a dedicated dispensary just for, you know, one or two patients. So we're speaking with Jabril Farah concerning what's happening with cannabis in England. If you missed this, any of this interview, which has been fascinating, you can go back to America's Cannabis Conversation and you can listen to this and, and the other appearance that uh, Jabril had. But uh, it's amazing what, you, what you're saying is that they have to send the prescription yeah. to Holland to be filled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a there was a case of um, a young lady in a town a town called Brighton, um, who I think she was the first person to have a medicinal cannabis prescription filled um, in the UK. And um, when the prescription arrived from Holland, she she had um, an entire TV crew in her house just to film the kind of momentous mm. moments where she she became the first person. So it's still very very new here. People are still kind of coming to grips with it and kind of, you know, trying to understand it. Jabril, I happened to have the opportunity, uh, a great opportunity, a couple of weeks ago to interview a researcher who is yeah. who is studying cannabis as a treatment mm-hmm. for pancreatic cancer. And wow, that's, he, that's he told terrific. me in the show that yeah. they have been able to kill the tumors of pancreatic mm-hmm. cancer with this strain of cannabis. And what's amazing for our audience who may not know much about pancreatic cancer, it will soon be yeah. the second largest cancer killer in the, in our country. But if yeah. you have pancreatic cancer, you're eventually gonna wind up with liver cancer and lung cancer and brain cancer and other cancers. And the protocol went out of the pancreas and went in and started to kill the cancer in other parts of the body. So they're starting. They're starting full bound, full blown U.S. Yeah. FDA clinical trials in January. Yeah. So Jabril, I want to thank you for the time. How can people get in touch with you? How can they follow you and what you're doing? YouTube video. If you just type on the YouTube CBD scams, if you type that, it's one of the first videos that will come up. And okay. my channel is called The Original Pharmacist. Well, thank you, Jabril, for, for being part of the conversation today. And as I said earlier, ladies and gentlemen, if you missed the first part of this interview or any part of the interview or the previous one, yeah. you can go to AmericanCannabisConversation.com and find previous episodes and listen to his fascinating story on 12 things to do about picking the right CBD product. Jabril, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Yes, um, I really enjoyed it. I hope um, people find it useful. Thank you. W420radionetwork.com